Do you read Sutter Kane? I can't read. Well, there's a movie. The crows stole my eyes. Ah, shit. I don't want to see an ordinary film. I want to see something extraordinary. Your sacrifice completes my sanctuary of 1,000 testicles. You ever feel as if your mind had started to erode? What the... Welcome to 1,000 Wives of Weird, the podcast. It's a celebration of everything weird, mostly movies. I'm Billy Martell, and with me as always is my co-host... Brad Hefner. And today we're talking about one of the most Lovecraftian movies that has nothing to do with H.P. Lovecraft, In the Mouth of Madness, or more specifically, John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. J.C.'s In the Mouth of Madness. <laughs> that is how he prefers to be called, yeah. J.C. He likes to go away for three days and come back... Mm-hmm. Always JC's here again. <laughs> now the movie is also referenced often as a, a Stephen King homage. I don't see much Stephen King influence uh, in the actual film. No, there's a character that's clearly based on Stephen King. Right, but... right. As we mentioned in the opening, this involves an author named Sutter Kane. Obviously a reference to Stephen King. Yes. The movie was directed by John Carpenter and written by a man named Michael DeLuca, who we will talk about in a bit. It is the third film in Carpenter's self-titled Apocalypse Trilogy, mm -hmm. and in my opinion, the second best one. Yes. Yeah. I think I think even if you're not as much of a fan of this movie, it's still the second best. Yeah, I, I think Because most I don't people... think anybody likes Prince of Darkness. There are people. There are people. There are people. Okay. But... No, uh, the uh, the third movie in the Apocalypse Trilogy is The Thing. Yeah, the Thing. Well, the first film in the Apocalypse true, Trilogy. but the one that you did not mention. Right. Yeah. Uh, the Thing, Prince of Darkness, mm -hmm. and In the Mouth of Madness. I guess the only thing that really combines them is that the world the, ends. The world ends at the end of each of the movies. Spoiler, Spoiler alert. alert. Although it is left somewhat ambiguous at the end of the thing, and In the Mouth of Madness is a film that I think I'm safe in saying that we both fucking love. Absolutely. Although it has a very sort of mixed reputation out there. I don't understand how. I know, but I was looking up reviews of the movie when we were we were talking about it. I wanted to see what other people had said, look for some fun behind-the-scenes stories, as we often do. And people kept talking about how confusing the movie is, how, uh, how much of a barrier there is to watching it, how difficult it is to enjoy. Those people are dumb. <laughs> Those are I, the stupidest fucking people. Like, how do you watch it? Like, I don't understand. Like, this is such a... This is this movie is so much fun. Like, yes. even if you don't... I, uh, I, I don't know. Very basically, mm -hmm. the movie is about an insurance claims investigator. Yes. Who is investigating the disappearance of an author named Sutter Kane. Mm -hmm. And they track Sutter Kane to the town of Hobbs End... Uh, New Hampshire. A, a town that is featured in his stories. Yes. And from there, things go poorly. Things get spooky real quick. As you said, it's it's very Lovecraftian. Yes. Very twisty. This is a horror film starring mm -hmm. Sam Neill. Uh, Sam Neill, fantastic actor. It also Absolutely. stars uh, one of our, briefly, admittedly, but he, he looms large for me, 
uh, one of our favorites on this podcast, uh, John Glover. Yes, and a and he he opens and closes the film in a certain way, mm-hmm. and uh, therefore loom and he's always always welcome on this show. Absolutely, always the welcome. same with the terrific actor Jurgen Prochnow. Jurgen Prochnow. Jurgen Prochnow. Oh, Jurgen Prochnow. <laughs> Famous for starring in David Lynch's Twin Peaks Fire Walk with Me, Jurgen Prock now. But yeah, so bef- as uh, with any movie on the podcast, we always encourage that people go out and see it and make their own opinions. Listening to us shoot the shit is not an, a, a replacement for watching a movie, especially a movie as good as this. Yes. Packed with so many spooky details and little Easter eggs that we could not possibly cover them all in the show. So, absolutely go out and watch this. But in the meantime, before we get into spoilers, Brad, do you recommend uh, In the Mouth of Madness? I don't even know that we need to do this segment because we've already been pretty... We uh, already were pretty complimentary. uh, Complimentary about it, yes. Definitely, definitely this, if you're a fan of horror, if you're a fan of Lovecraft, if you're a fan of John Carpenter, Mm -hmm. if you're a fan of Sam Neill... Mm-hmm. Although I think if Sam Neill, I know Sam Neill has fans because I'm one of them. I'm one of them too. But I imagine most people know Sam Neill from Jurassic Park. Yes. And Jurassic three. Park Part 3. Yes. <laughs> no, people know him from just Part 3. Just Part 3. Okay. They, they were like, I'm going to watch Lost World. I'm going to watch 3. I'm going to watch <laughs> Jurassic Park Fallen Kingdom. I'm going to watch only the good ones. Only the good I'm not going to. I'm not going to waste my time with that bullshit original yeah right yeah i i the only reason i i i still include this segment is i i like our little siskel and ebert back and forths here yeah but uh, yeah i absolutely love this movie i think that maybe part of the reason why some people don't like it is that there are a lot of films that have the carpenter films that have much more solid understandable plots in the mouth of madness it, By design, yeah. is a much more dreamlike, nightmarish experience. Absolutely. It is fundamentally different from anything else he's ever made. And in my opinion, that's a strength. I like dreamlike narratives. I like uh, directors that have more than one trick in their toolbox. Yeah. And I think this is one of the most technically amazing films he ever made out again aside from the thing and halloween and the yes. ones that people actually like uh, I mean, he's made a lot of great films he's made a lot of great movies we uh, should also point out yes aside from cigarette burns mm-hmm. this is the last great john carpenter movie yeah this is famously the last decent john carpenter film is the way it's referred to by most people uh, Cigarette Burns came after this, mm-hmm. and has, as we mentioned in that episode, very similar themes yes. to this. Although you had not seen In the Mouth of Madness when we watched Cigarette I had Cigarette not, Burns. and now that I've seen this, which which do you prefer, In the Mouth of Madness or Cigarette Burns? In the Mouth of Madness. I, um, I think I agree, yeah. Uh, there's, the there's length just, helps it, the yes. acting prowess of Sam Neill compared to Norman Reedus helps it. The acting prowess of the entire cast, there are some... Again, J- Jonathan Glover, but like for real now, there are a lot of actors in this movie in like small parts yes. that absolutely kill it. But yeah, and uh, as much as I like the plot of this better than Cigarette Burns, I mean, mm-hmm. it's the plot of Cigarette Burns is cool, yes. but even then we had questions about like, okay, well, why is this happening? Right. In 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 the Mouth of Madness. There is a an explicit reason why everything happens, even if it does not necessarily 
makes sense. Even if you're right. one of the horror movie fans who's like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? There's yeah, a reason why it's being done. There is a reason why it's being done, even if you didn't necessarily pick up on it. One thing that some of the detractors of this film said that I absolutely agree with, especially having now watched it a couple of times for this episode, this movie absolutely benefits from repeat viewings. Yeah. You notice more, you absorb more, You knowing more of the twists, you can see how things are being built up and, and set up for later. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, it's a great movie, and yeah. Absolutely, go watch it, stop this right now. Yeah, stop listening to us. Go watch it, then come back. <laughs> then yes. come back and listen to us explain the movie, or tell you what happens in the movie. <laughs> All right, let's get into this. All right, just before getting into the, the actual plot, I'll just say that I, I also listened to the commentary track for the film, and something that Brad and I talk about a lot off mic, I do not remember if we discussed this on mic during the Cigarette Burns episode, is how uninterested with the legacy of the John Carpenter brand John Carpenter is. Yeah, John Carpenter just wants to make money. Right, he just wants to make money and he just wants to like do shit. He I'm doesn't not, care. I'm not saying he's not an artist. No. I'm not saying that he's not a craftsman. Uh, absolutely not. Uh, but John Carpenter's main concern is... Am I getting paid? Right. Am I getting paid and making a product, having fun getting paid and making a product that will sustain him? That's why he does not give a shit about any remakes of his stuff, any sequels that were not helmed by him. Right. He Fans are always trying to protect him, to defend him, like, and maybe... You there there you can make an argument about like trying to defend the the legacy of someone like Wes Craven who was a little bit more uh, into the art of things and into like emotions and stuff. John Carpenter doesn't give a shit about this. This entire commentary, there are a few little nuggets of what you would hope to get in a commentary, like behind the scenes stories and fun uh, little nuggets. Yeah. But the lion's share of it is him and his very monotone cinematographer talking about lighting. <laughs> Okay. Like every scene, he'll be like, "So this is interesting." Uh, Sam Neill seems to be in shadow, but David Warner is li- a little bit brighter. Could you talk about that? And he'd be like, "Yeah, well, we put Sam Neill in shadow and we lit David Warner a little bit brighter." That's fascinating. So in this scene, and it just it it goes on like that for hours. All John Carpenter wants to do, mm-hmm. especially now, but I'm sure it started to get this way in the '90s. Yeah, he wants to wear a black turtleneck. <laughs> Yes. He wants to smoke cigarettes. Yep. And he wants to noodle on his keyboard from the 80s. <laughs> like, he just wants to go down and... <laughs> he wants to put on his black turtleneck, go yep. down in the basement. Honey, I'm going to play the Casio. <laughs> and he just, like... Yeah. Just fucking... And go on tour with his son. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, and, he and David Lynch should do weather reports together. I... <sighs> Now there's an odd couple for you, <laughs> just well, coming together over their love of cigarettes. David, yeah, exactly, and and wearing all black. David Lynch does the uh, does the weather report, and then he, he he throws to John Carpenter to play to play him out. Yeah. <laughs> I I want uh, John Carpenter to do like when sometimes when people are scoring stuff, they'll have the movie playing. Yes, uh, yes. I want John Carpenter to do, like, the incidental m- music for the Brady Bunch. <laughs> I want him to be down in his concrete basement. Right. There's a big projector screen that's, like, showing Marsha getting hit in the fucking nose with the football. 
And John Carpenter is staring at it intently, mm-hmm. cigarette in mouth, and he's just playing like two notes. There's this show that my friend Stephen, who's a who's a fan of the show. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Uh, Stephen has been trying to get me to cover this show on the podcast for a while. It was a Brady Bunch reunion show where they brought the cast back together and tried to make a serious drama about them gr- having grown mm, up. Yes. But then the network got scared about it being a drama and added forced them to add a laugh track to already very serious episodes. Oh, so it's like MASH. <laughs> kind of like MASH, yeah. And so I... If if that was the show that John Carpenter was doing the music for, fucking a hundred percent, I w- I will produce this. I will give all my money to produce this. Send me the Kickstarter link. I will make this happen. Alice's plane was hit by enemy fire. <laughs> it spun into the Sea of Japan. There were no survivors. Oh no! We open on an asylum. Which is apparently actually a water purification plant, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, is it? Yes. Well, the outside of it is. But we open on an asylum run by John Glover. Uh, Dr. John Glover, as Dr. he's John called Glover. in the movie. Dr. John. Dr. John. Oh, what a night. <laughs> Who, you don't even get that reference. I do don't not laugh. get that. I, I was a funny voice, so I laughed at it in a, a purely juvenile way. But... Uh, they're receiving a new patient, John yes. Trent, played by Sam Neill, who Sam is Neal. fantastic at playing a desperate person. Who's fantastic just in general. Just in general. Like I've Sam Neill had a huge career or a lengthy career before Jurassic Park. Yes. And then I think after Jurassic Park, he's like, Well shit, I have all this Jurassic Park money. Right. He he's recently he's kind of just sort of escaped back to New Zealand where he was born and I believe he was born in New Zealand but uh, he, that's sure. where he lives now and he runs I believe an alpaca farm wonderful and occasionally he does independent New Zealand movies when he feels like it do you think there's ever like trouble on the alpaca farm <laughs> what like, kind of trouble like the electric fences go down oh no and <laughs> And Jeff Goldblum is there visiting him, and yeah. he's like, uh, there's alpacas on this alpaca farm, and uh, in there, hello? Must move faster, must move faster. I will. Sam Neill will upload videos to his uh, Instagram every once in a while, and apparently Jeff Goldblum does visit him quite a lot. And I they, hope so. They play piano together. Ah, oh, that's great. It is, yeah, because uh, for those who don't know, Jeff Goldblum is a jazz musician. Yes, now. he is. Uh, Sam Neill is the star of a movie that will definitely be on this podcast. Possession. Uh, Possession, yes. uh, By Andre Zulawski, I believe is how you say that name. There is uh, a very goofy sense of humor to this movie as as, as well. We get the first sense of that when Sam Neill, or or John Trent, I should say, I'll I'll refer to him for for the rest of the film, Uh, Trent kicks one of the orderlies in the balls. Yeah. And this becomes an ongoing thing for, like, several more lines than you would think, where first, after Trent is shoved in his cell, immediately is like, I'm sorry about the balls! It was a lucky hit! I'm sorry about the balls! (laughs) It was a lucky shot! That's exactly how he talks in this movie. Yes. Uh, (laughs) I can't tell if he was supposed to have an accent or not supposed Mm -hmm. to have an accent. I don't know. But he... Has, he does something. There's another connection between Sam Neill and this movie. Sam Neill... What more connection do you need, aside <laughs> from the fact that he stars in it? Well, Sam Neill accepted this part because 
he had worked with John Carpenter previously on a much less well-loved John Carpenter film, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Oh, okay. And the Chevy Chase movie? The Chevy Chase movie. John Carpenter directed that? John Carpenter directed that, yes. Not one of John Carpenter's more popular films. Clearly, I didn't know he was involved. However, John Carpenter did choose that movie over working on In the Mouth of Madness when he was originally offered the script in the late 80s. Well, I'm glad he waited, because I feel like it's... <laughs> No, I genuinely feel like it's better. What was this, 94? This was an, I, something. Yeah, 94. That's exactly uh, it. I think this is better 94 than like 88 or something. Okay. I, fair I enough. think like a little bit of time, a little bit of. Mm -hmm. I don't know that the this 80s film does, vibe would yeah. help in the mouth of madness. This film does utilize a lot more 90s feeling filmmaking techniques yes. than a lot of his earlier stuff. A lot of John Carpenter's 80s stuff. Feels very 80s because the feeling of his stuff kind of defined what the 80s was to a, or is to a lot of people. And also he was doing the scores for most of those films. Yes. And it's... He very loves electronic. His, he loves his synth. Yes. So the score, like it just adds the 80s feel. Speaking of which, he does do the score to this movie as well. Oh, does he? He does. Uh, I, it, I didn't think he did because it does not sound like one of his. And I thought in the credits it, it attributed someone else to the Well, music. he did it in collaboration with someone else who I meant to write Yo -yo down Ma. about. It's Jim something. I forgot to write his name down. He... Jim Morrison. Jim Morrison. Holy oh, shit. man. Back from the dead to work on In the Mouth of Madness. <laughs> but he, he worked with this this other guy who he had also he had just worked with on the TV movie Body Bags. Okay. Which I believe Stephen King was actually involved in. But he he worked on that film with this guy. They, they partnered up with this movie again. So that means that not only the symphonic score of the whole movie but also the hard rock intro and outro are also john carpenter's works which i loved i thought they were great. i can't decide whether i love or hate this thing so when the movie it's... opens before the asylum we see a bunch of sutter kane's books being printed in a, in a printing factory in a montage that john carpenter on the commentary track refers to as student filmmaking whatever the fuck that means john but uh it's a it's a great opening but over it is this like hard rock track, which it's, is a great track, and it sounds it. It's clear yeah. that they were like, "I wish we could get Metallica." We don't have the budget. It does feel like that, doesn't it? It's it's. It was like I was like, "Is this Master?" I don't listen to Met Metallica. Okay, but I was like, <laughs> "This sounds like Metallica." Is this like Master of Puppets or something, mm -hmm, or, uh, mm -hmm. Sanatorium or some shit? It was right. Like, yeah. No, this is just. This it's is, just John Carpenter. This is get us as close to Metallica as you can yeah. without getting us sued. I enjoy it. I feel like it feels more like one of his uh, Kurt Russell films than it does this one. Okay. And the only other... And I would also say that it in this movie, it almost feels like the Beware of the Blob song at the opening of The okay. Blob, where it just, it just feels tonally inconsistent with the th tone of the film. Yeah, it's not really like a, a a hard rock movie. No, not really at all. But it is a good track. So yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I go back and forth every time I watch the movie. I can't decide if I like it or, or hate it. A lot of the people who hate this movie love that track, so okay. fuck it. Speaking of music, as John Trent is, is locked in, to the asylum, John Glover decides to calm him and the other patients down by playing a Muzak version of The Carpenters' We've Only um, Just Begun. We've only just begun. 
uh, all the inmates immediately start singing along. Yeah. Much to Trent's dismay, he says, No! Not not the carpenters! carpenters. (laughs) That's all I need! Listen, man, I've had a long night and I hate the fucking (laughs) eagles! So, again, the movie, it might be a very dark horror movie, but... No, there's to, comedy in to it. To balance that out, the sense of humor is very goofy. Yes. As he's sitting in his cell, listening to the torturous Muzak, a shadowy figure approaches him and tells him that it's not the end. He hasn't read the ending yet. It's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. A hand breaks through the glass in his door and causes him to have visions of both, of of both sugar his, plums his, <laughs> dancing in his head. Unfortunately, no. Both the past and the future oh, man. of his character. Is it future or is it past? Mm, we you live know what, inside a dream. You know what this mental asylum needs? <laughs> I can't wait for you to tell me. It needs a good, old-fashioned, mm-hmm. multiple MIGs. Oh my god. To throw some semen at somebody. Yeah, yeah. That's what we need. Already this movie's so heavy. Oh, crazy people. (laughs) Oh, Sam Neill. What is this, a dinosaur movie? (laughs) I want multiple MIGs to tell Sam Neill or John Glover that he can smell their cunt. Right, right. And then throw some semen at him. Every asylum scene in every movie needs multiple MIGs. Yes. Even... Uh, Stuart Gordon's From Beyond had multiple MIGs. Yeah. Right. Uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Classic multiple MIGs movie. (laughs) I haven't seen that one. Well, that's why you don't know that he's in there. That's why I don't know that he's in there. Jack Nicholson argued with, uh, who was that, Milos Forman? I think it was Milos Forman. Sure. Let's say it's Milos Forman. Let's say it, for the Um, sake of argument. Because... Originally, instead of the the role of Chief Bromden, right, was originally going to be entirely replaced. Ken Kesey did not like this. They were originally going to replace him entirely with multiple MIGs. Uh, that makes sense. And Jack Nicholson was going to offer multiple MIGs some gum, mm-hmm. and in return, he was going to get some cum. <laughs> Girl interrupted. Another great multiple <laughs> MIGs. But I'm a cheerleader. Another great multiple MIGs story. Yes. Cut to one of my favorite character actors of all time, uh, David Warner, arriving and informing the audience through a conversation with John Glover that there has been an epidemic of psychotic people across America. Sure, it's crazy out there. (laughs) It's raining psychos. And Warner is there to investigate if Trent has any connection to this. Okay. Well, let's let's get into this right now because okay. otherwise we're going to say like we know why quite a lot. Yeah, we're going to be really irritating on this episode. It turns out that everything we're seeing is yes. written by Sutter Kane. Yes, the characters, everything that's going on in the story, is literally created by the author who is in the story himself, Sutter Kane. And we'll get more into this once the reveal happens, Mm -hmm. but this creates such a wonderfully twisty inside out. Yeah. Doesn't really make sense if you try to hold it up to light, but at the same time, it still makes perfect sense because it's all just folding in on itself. It's a, yeah, it's a constant mind bending fuckery going on. I, it's, it's weird because we... Outside of the podcast, when we're watching movies together, uh, Brad and I, Brad for probably the fifth time, myself for the first time, had just watched Mulholland Drive. Yes. And if you didn't, if you uh, 
were listening to the spoilers of this section and weren't into getting spoilers about Mulholland Drive, close your ears for a second, but like Mulholland Drive has a lot to do with what are stories being told to you, yes. what are re- what's reality, what is a dream, and all this stuff. So it was interesting going from that to this, which is very similar thematic elements to it, in a different way. Yes, a this very is, different way. This is more about storytellers instead of the lies that we tell ourselves. Yes. But it is. it was still very interesting to jump between the two films and see how they both handled similar things subject matter sure i didn't yeah. even consider that but yeah. uh but yes yeah, so and in a way it's it's almost cheap but i still appreciate it so anything that doesn't really make sense yeah blame sutter kane right anything that's like this seems kind of contrived well it's written by a, a mm-hmm. hacky horror author right sutter kane it is that that is literally the built-in excuse of the film and it's fucking brilliant i like it's, i think it's, it is like i think this might be one of the things where some other Critics might look at it and be like, ah, oh, that's so hacky. That's so lazy. That's so cheap. But, but again, it's... John Carpenter doesn't care. No. <laughs> like, he, he, uh, as, as he put, there's a jump scare at some point in the movie, and in the commentary, he's like, so that was a cheap trick I pulled, but I love cheap tricks. <laughs> I love cheap trick. <laughs> surrender, surrender, but don't give yourself away. I also love Cheap Trick. I like the four songs I know of them. <laughs> yeah, I don't know many Cheap Trick songs, but I do like the ones that I know. So, David Warner goes in to talk to Trent, and Trent has been drawing crosses with a black crayon all over himself and, and all the over walls. the padded cells. Where did he get this crayon? Oh, no, he well, requested it. He That's requested right. it from John Glover. They yes. do actually cover that. There are two interpretations that you could go with this. You could say that he's like trying to protect himself from the monsters outside. I think he's just trying to convince the staff that he's crazy. Well, David Warner even says that. He's like, yeah. after I see this, of course I'd have to let you stay. Right, and he even says to him, didn't you want to leave? There's a guy with swollen balls. Again, they keep bringing up the balls. Yeah. There's a guy with swollen balls who says that he, the he, balls. you really want to get out of here. And Sammy is like, I'm allowed to I'm allowed to change my mind. A lady is allowed to change her mind, yes. so I've heard. We're we're gonna cut to a flashback now as as Sam Neils is informing or John Trent is informing David Warner about what's going on. Almost the entirety of the movie is flashback. Almost the entirety of the movie is flashback. As again, John Carpenter pointed out, it's a technique that's been used in countless other films. Particularly, sure. his reference point of reference was Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which very similar structure, except Invasion of the Body Snatchers is a tacked on happy ending that the yeah. studio forced them into and. During this, we we cut back to Trent when he was a freelance insurance investigator, as we mentioned. We see him. He was freelance. He seemed to work for a company. No, he said that he was freelance. Oh, it's in the dialogue. Rogue bad boy. He's a rogue bad boy driving his motorcycle from town to town, looking for insurance fraud. Exactly. Again, talking about the fact that this movie is implicitly within the story written by a hack horror author. The character of John Trent during his prime, as we see in this flashback, is the most cliche, noir detective character. I was just about to bring out up this noir aspect, where yes. it's like a double indemnity. Uh, yeah. There we go. Uh, also about insurance fraud. Right. Um, and another movie that begins with a character narrating what brought him to this low point yep. that you see him in at the beginning. Carpenter even told Sam Neill to channel Bogart as much as possible in his performance. He asked him 
to tug on his earlobes occasionally because that's... Like Carol Burnett? (laughs) Apparently that was something that Humphrey Bogart did in The Big Sleep. Yeah, to uh, signal to his aunt or whatever the fuck. (laughs) Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Carol Burnett. Burnett. Yeah. But in this scene, it is textbook noir. There is light wafting through the blinds. They're literally sweating a man. They have the heat turned up. They're sweating a man. uh, Getting them to crack. Private like, eye investigator. Pri- private investigators in these stories are always working in a heat wave. The cigarette smoke is chokingly thick. Let me ask you something. Sure. Serious question. Sure. Who would win in a dick sucking contest? <laughs> okay, who are the participants? John Trent. Uh huh. Mike Hammer. John Trent. Mike Hammer. Uh, I think it. It depends on who Sutter Kane writes to win. True. Yes. Okay. Sutter Kane yeah. is 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 our Sutter is Kane their god. Is, is channeling his Chuck Tingle, <laughs> and he's writing some weird erotica. We so we see John Trent in in his in his doing prime. his job fantastically. Fantastically, he he nails the dude to the wall. He nails him, the dude to the wall. Didn't even really need to sweat him because he had Not all the really. proof he needed. Right. No, he just was he dick. was just he was just being a dick to him, which, which is another <laughs> element of being a private eye in a another, story. Yeah. Mike Hammer. Biggest dick in film biggest cinema. Dick and, biggest swinging film dick cinema? in film cinema. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's how people talk. That's you how know, people... Film cinema. <laughs> and and he, he even has like a great exit noir line where he's like, if, you, if you're going to commit insurance fraud, don't make your wife a partner. And if you do, don't fuck around. Yeah. You know, stuff like... Yeah, it's, it's, it's great. It's and great content. Then later, his... <laughs> the only black man we see in the movie. <laughs> That's true. His friend uh, <laughs> named Robbie, who I can only assume is Robbie Robertson. <laughs> uh, he left the Daily Bugle and right. got into the insurance game. Got into the insurance game. Uh, there, he, there, he insures a publishing company. Yes. And they're talking about the fact that Sutter Kane, the famous author, who apparently John Trent has never heard of. Sutter Kane? What was that? Uh, but apparently Sutter Kane has just disappeared. Yeah, what a dick. And they're filing some sort of insurance claim on the lost profits from his manuscript that he has yet to deliver to them. Mm-hmm. Now, this is where we get, in my opinion, is the biggest misstep in the whole movie. Oh, yeah. And this is something we talked about when we first watched this together. Yes. Uh, when, I guess, technically, I was showing you it, even yes, though it was your copy. it was my copy of the And film. I had not seen it in so long that yes. I remembered nothing. Right. Um, we were we were both watching it, but like so we have this diner scene and it is clear so here's here's the setup. They're sitting in the diner, uh, each on either side of this booth table. Yes. And in the far distance across the street from this diner, a man covered in shit, just dirty uh, he's got like what looks like bruises and or blood on his or dry mm-hmm. blood on his face. This man looks like John Carroll Lynch. Sure, and he's got an axe, and he's he's coming across the street to the diner. It is clear that at one point they shot the scene with the idea that most of the coverage would be one singular take mm-hmm. of them sitting in the diner across from each other, uh, sharing exposition. While in the distance, the audience gets to see this man, this 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 scary this looking, very dude. intense man, walking closer to them. They're oblivious. Yeah, it's a fucking great setup. If they had done it all in one take, eventually he will smash through the plate glass window with yep. his axe, and the action will begin. Yep. But who knows why? I do not believe they discussed this on the commentary. Uh, I did zone out a couple of times, but I don't believe they ever discuss this on the commentary. The 
for whatever reason, somebody chickened out. Someone decided that they they had set it up. The shot is in the movie. You can see it. Uh, Bits of it. But somebody chickened out, and they decided, let's shoot the table at a two-person shot, cut to outside, having the guy coming in and listening to people getting... Uh, upset with him as he pushes them out of the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, they start playing intense, scary music of him coming towards them way too early. It often, it honestly gets a little bit difficult to even hear the exposition exposition that's being shared at the table mm-hmm. as the guy comes close, and he f- shatters through the window. And it's just from a filmmaking perspective it just feels like a giant missed opportunity. Yeah, no it's disappointing, but it's still a great scene. It's still a great scene. And it just after, it could have been so much better. And after the Axeman bursts breaks through the window, we get possibly the most iconic moment uh in terms of the legacy of this movie. Uh if there's a quotable line in this film, mm-hmm. it is do you read Sutter Kane? And he says in a very obviously dubbed over voice, which is makes it so much spookier, yes. honestly. Do you read Sutter Kane? He asks, Do you read Sutter Kane? He asks John Trent, and he's got uh, double pupils in both eyes. I love this effect so much, and it's so fucking simple. Yeah. It's just contact lenses, <laughs> but it's it was, so eerie and perfect. It was such a cool thing that 2017's The Mummy went and ripped it off. Uh, just like they ripped off cool shit from every other horror movie made just in like the past several decades. Just like they ripped off cool runnings. Just like they ripped off cool runnings. Just like they ripped off American Werewolf in, run- uh, in America. People, American Werewolf in London, not American Werewolf in America. Oh man, uh, I pay to see that. American Werewolf in America. Yeah, living in America. America. <laughs> just as he's uh, he asked John Trent, "Do you read Sutter Kane?" John Trent is very confused by this whole thing. Then we see something odd. The police killing a white man. Yes, two young police officers show up in the diner and blow blow this weirdo away. Now, in the real world, they would have taken him alive. <laughs> yes, in the real world, because he's an older white guy, they would have been like, he reminds me of my pop-pop, and they would have taken him alive. Come but, here, poopums. Come here, poopums. But it, because this is a movie... They shoot him to death. Yes. Yeah. And this whole, uh, aside from the misstep, even though this scene could have been better, still a fantastic scene. Mm-hmm. And uh, presumably Trent recovers from this traumatic event pretty quickly. Apparently. Not Robbie Robertson, because we never see him or another black person in no. the film again. I would imagine that he went straight to the asylum. We see John Trent win yes. at the end from the trauma. Oh, maybe he becomes multiple MIGs. Oh, my God. <laughs> multiple MIGs origin story. Ooh, uh, he, was, he was born... Black exploitation he, multiple MIGs. Multiple MIGs was born a, a poor black child. <laughs> like you said, before the attack, we got all this exposition about Sutter Kane having disappeared. Once the attack is over, we f- see John Trent in his home watching the TV, and we get another report about the epidemic of crazy people uh, attacking folks all over town. But this time, we are given the source. Apparently, Sutter Kane is such a popular horror author that his fans are almost literally rabid, a yes. rabid fan base. Uh, and and uh, they talk about the fact that his his work is almost a religion to some people. Mm-hmm. Now, we're both big Sutter Kane fans. We are both big Sutter Kane fans. We have an extensive collection, and we decided to pull out some of our, uh, not our favorites, 
but uh, sort of the second stringers of Sut- so, Sutter Kane. Nothing that was talked about in the movie. No, no Hobbs and Horror. No, no, no uh, other titles that I cannot recall. Uh, I have a list of them later. We'll talk about them when they come. Okay, out. but uh, yeah. So, so uh, what's what's one of your favorite sort of less talked about Sutter Kane tales? Well, before the the book that he releases in the film mm-hmm. is called In the Mouth of Madness. Very appropriately, yes. yes. Before that, mm-hmm. he tried sort of a different take in the butt of madness. In the butt of madness. Yes. Okay. Um, sort of, and it's just in the mouth of madness, but in reverse. I, goes, I am fascinated to know how this is. Because it goes up through the butt and out through the mouth, <laughs> where the regular movie goes <laughs> in through the mouth and out through the butt. Okay. Sort of like a memento thing. And he's like, let's flip the script. Okay, so it's just exactly the same book, except it's told in reverse. Yes, and everything's written backwards. And everything's written backwards? Yes. So is it the kind of thing where, like, even the letters are backwards, you have to hold it up to a mirror to read it? Well, I'm very smart. Oh, okay. So I can read backwards. Okay. Uh, you might have trouble. I do. I but, am. I am uh, very dim. So that made it difficult and did not enhance my enjoyment. Mm-hmm. But I did like traveling through the butt of madness. You did like traveling through like the butt of madness? I felt like he really got me into butt country. <laughs> I felt like <laughs> Sutter Kane really feels like what it's like to be... I know he doesn't know. Right. But it feels like he knows what it's like to have butt madness. Which I have struggled with my entire life. Right. Right. So I am the poster child for butt madness. Butt madness. Now, yeah. could you, for those who don't know, do you want to like raise awareness what butt madness is? Sometimes my poop comes out like silly string. <laughs> that must be hard for you. It is. <laughs> it's hard for me. It's hard for my cleaning lady. <laughs> you're right. Your extensive staff of cleaning yeah. ladies. Yes. So yeah, I was I was thinking about some of my favorite not often talked about Sutter Kane stories. As as we've we've talked talked about Sutter Kane is sort of a, a character that's very much based on H.P. Lovecraft. Yes, especially the stories that he tells in the universe. Lovecraft, that he has. Stephen King. Sure, and so m- many of his stories have parallels with Lovecraft. And one of my favorite is the Shadow over Portland. Yes, right, where uh, a a traveler who has been living in in Massachusetts learns that he might have some family in in the South Portland area, Portland, Maine, Portland, not Portland Maine. Oregon. Yeah, Portland, Maine. Okay, so he goes he goes into to Portland, Maine, and discovers that everyone there are secretly lobster people. Oh, they're secretly lobster people that worship. The Bigfoot at the famous National uh, Cryptid Museum that's in South Portland. These are all local references. Yes, that are going to play great. I know with our non-existent <laughs> audience. Exactly. The people who don't listen to this, <laughs> the people who don't listen to this, are going to eat this up. Well, Sutter Kane, like both King and Lovecraft, was a very was a very New England focused mm-hmm. horror writer. Do you think? Yeah. If Sutter Kane had lived long enough, mm-hmm. he would have been drafted instead of Tom Brady? <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. 
I think they would have been... Uh, you think they would have gone for a football man, not an author? <laughs> I think that they would have been thrown off by his German accent. True. Yeah. Fucking Jurgen. Despite <laughs> despite being a New Englander, he's a very German New Englander. We next see Trent waiting in Kane's uh, publisher's office, looking at the covers of some of Sutter Kane's books. Uh, the cover art all features references to not only future events in the movie itself, mm-hmm. but also to a bunch of Lovecraftian creatures and concepts. Uh, you see some creatures that kind of look like the Deep Ones yes. from uh, the Shadow Over Innsmouth. You also see creatures that definitely resemble Cthulhu, his most popular creation. Mm-hmm. A lot of tentacle monsters. A lot of tentacle monsters. We also see that all the titles are plays on his on Lovecraft's work. So obviously the title of the movie and the title of his uh, Sutter Kane's upcoming release, In the Mouth of Madness, is a play on The Mountains of Madness. Mm-hmm. Hobbs End Horror is a play on The Dunwich Horror. The Thing in the Basement is a play on The Thing on the Doorstep. Whisper, the Whisperer of the Dark. The Whisperer in the Darkness. Haunter out of Time. Haunter of the Dark. And so on and so forth. Trent goes in to meet the publisher, who is played by Wayne's World 2 star, Charlton Heston. <laughs> uh, and he also oh, meets... He was the star of that movie. He was the that. star. He was the, he was the best joke in the film. <laughs> he was the best joke in the film. <laughs> uh, he gets to meet Linda Stiles. Uh, who is Kane's editor, played by Julie Carmen, who I don't know from anything. I have not seen her name. I did not recognize her either. Most of the reviews I read for the film criticized her very heavily. I don't think she does that bad of a job. She's not terrible. It's She's not not a very... She doesn't uh, have the electricity of Sam Neill or David Warner or Charlton mm, Heston or Jurgen Prock now. <laughs> Or she, that, or that weird, <laughs> or that weird Germanic uh, sort of tertiary character who we'll meet later, uh, Vigo the Carpathian. Yes, yes. Uh, but it's revealed in this conversation as they're talking about the disappearance of Sutter Kane that the man who attacked John Trent with the axe was Kane's agent, which I love. That's I so love, good. That's such a good little twist. Like that's yeah. so good. It's so good that already we're starting to fold in on ourselves. Yeah, exactly. And the last time that they saw Sutter Kane's agent, this this guy, he was going to try and find out where Sutter Kane had gone. He was going to try and find out what where he had gone and find out where this missing manuscript for the new book, In the Mouth of Madness, had gotten to. Mm-hmm. The next thing they know, he's showing up with double pupils. And an axe trying to kill John Trent, of all people. He's the axe man. Trent thinks that all of this, somehow, including the agent's death, is all part of an elaborate publicity stunt. Exactly. (laughs) Nickelodeon's going to send Sutter Kane to your school. If you can figure out where he went. Exactly. Or, or as he puts it at one point, you get a Sutter Kane lunchbox. I'd love a Sutter Kane lunchbox. I would fucking love a Sutter Kane lunchbox. I would eat lunch <laughs> if I had a Sutter Kane lunchbox. I would kill John Trent with an axe for a Sutter Kane lunchbox. <laughs> that would be a great contest. <laughs> kill Sam Neill with an axe, get a lunchbox? Yes. Travel <laughs> you to would, his... You would run out of Sam Neill's very quick. <laughs> I mean... That's what makes it a challenge. <laughs> First to get to that kiwi alpaca farm. <laughs> and murk that bitch. <laughs> and murk that bitch. You get a right. lunchbox. Right. That's what a human life is worth. Oops, turns out he's already on the set of Jurassic World 3. Gotta go back all the way to California. Ah, oh, son of a bitch. So on his way home from this meeting, John Trent 
sees a whole bunch of posters of Sutter Kane's work, and then comes across a cop beating a homeless man to death in an alley. Take a look at the long man beating up the small guy. Oh, man. <laughs> look at those cavemen go. Look at those cavemen go. So, yeah, very normal thing to see, as it turns out. And Trent very much takes up a it white inside. Person. Beating up a white person. Because there, we ran out of black people in the movie <laughs> yeah, already. We had Orlando. <laughs> we, had our, we had our one guy. Now we, we need to move on. We need to move on. But I will say, this, this is one thing that this movie only touches on in the briefest sense. But I do think it's one of the more brilliant things that pop culture in general has done with Lovecraft's work since his death mm -hmm. and that is combining it with noir sensibilities i love the idea because lovecraft stories are often about making us feel small about mm -hmm. making us feel unimportant about making us feel like we could just be wiped away at any second it's literally just the horror of looking up at the night sky and being like oh shit yeah yeah exactly it's, it's that existential dread yes made slimier mm. by a racist made uh, brian usnad <laughs> made brian usnad yeah exactly but noir is about looking at the dark, seedy underbelly of our world to say that, uh, much like much of the work of David Lynch, looking at the glitz and glamour is what hides the darkness underneath. I feel like noir is this idea of the world is dark and scary, mm -hmm. but if the right man can find the right information, sure, he can illuminate it. Detective but stories often noir stories do end on a sort of down note where True. even though they find the right inf like Chinatown, even though he finds the truth, he finds the information in the end, the powerful step on the weak anyway. Yes. Because they're just too powerful. Yeah. Um yeah. but I I guess it's more detective stories really mm -hmm. sort of fulfill this Gnostic ideal of that through knowledge we can become better. We can mm -hmm. cut through the darkness. Uh, That's no, a more hopeful way of looking at it than I yeah, um, thought of. Whereas Lovecraft is like, mm -hmm. you can know, but mm -hmm. it's not going to make anything better. But that's why I love the combination of noir with Lovecraft. Oh, absolutely. They're in at both odds. this and in a lot of things. They're not only at odds, but there's also this element of Lovecraft says we could all be wiped out any moment. Yeah. Noir comes in and in combination with that says we could all be wiped out in a moment. And we probably deserve it. Yes. Uh, which I think is just the extra layer of fuck you to the horror concept, which makes it sing. Mm -hmm. After collecting some of Kane's books, Trent goes back to his apartment and uh, by cutting them up, realizes that they all have hidden shapes that if you put them together in a puzzle, it looks like New Hampshire. Yep. <laughs> And it has a little red dot that tells him where the town Hobbs ends, which we, as we mentioned, is a story, a town in one of his stories. Uh, fictional. It's his Dairy Maine. It's his Dairy Maine. Or actually more like his Castle Rock, because apparently True. a lot of his stories are set there. That is a real story where uh, much of his work is set, and it's a real town, apparently, that you can find if you follow this secret map he hid in his covers. And again, there's such a leap of logic to, like, I'm going to cut up the covers and almost right. seems contrived. But again, it is contrived. It is. Because it's being written by a hack writer. It's being written by a hack writer. Exactly. As he discovers this, Trent keeps having dreams where he sees the encounter in the alley again and again. But each time the cop is more monstrous. Mm -hmm. And this finally culminates in him witnessing the agent from earlier, the one who attacked him with the axe, 
getting killed by a mob of axe-wielding zombie people. Live by the axe, die by the axe. I guess so. So throughout the film, like I said at the beginning, there is so much creepy shit packed into this movie, we cannot possibly talk about it all. We'll try and highlight the ones that are most important in the plot Mm -hmm. or made the most effect on us. Yeah. But you really gotta just watch the movie. They, as the movie is written with the idea that the movie is being written by a horror author Mm -hmm. or that events from the other, the horror author's other stories sometimes take place within this one. So there are all sorts of little scary stories, little night gallery episodes taking place throughout the whole movie. Yes. And we'll try and talk about some of them, but we can't possibly talk about them all. Yes, so Trent and Stiles are both sent to Hobbs End. Charlton Heston said, you need to go find Kane, and you're going to take uh, our top editor with you. Yeah, because this is an editor's job. Right. Well, she was the uh, she was the one who edited Kane's work. Right. So she has she was the closest person to Kane aside from the agent. And aside from the agent, she's the only one who had read this new book. Right. Although apparently she didn't read it closely enough because she doesn't see yeah. what's about to happen as being part of it. So they continue the they get, they head to Hobbs End to continue the investigation. They're driving for a very long time. Uh, While they were driving, I don't know what it was. Maybe just yeah. them driving past like desolate landscape the not lo- desolate lo- a lot like of, it's a lot, a lot of brown of, cornfields a lot of cornfields a lot of brown colors yeah um it gave me a lot of true detective vibes oh i can see that of yeah just like woody harrelson and matthew mcconaughey in the car like well on top of that it's not just them going by the brown landscapes it's the conversations that they have yes they are very true detective conversations where sam neil plays a hilarious joke on <laughs> styles where <laughs> He takes well, out that's the fucking, not very true detective. The fucking clown horn he has yeah. in his glove box and wakes her up, and then this is the second prank that he plays on her in the office earlier. It's shown that he's like intentionally blowing cigarette smoke into her face to try and bother her. Uh, John Trent is like a a little kid pulling girls' pigtails trying yeah. to get them to notice him. But uh, what happens next is there's this very spooky speech that Styles has where they're talking about the difference between reality and fiction. And she says, reality is just what we tell each other it is. Sane and insane could easily switch places if the insane were to become the majority. I had a... Sorry. And you would find yourself locked in a padded cell wondering what happened to the world. You you would if you realized everything you knew was gone. It would be pretty lonely to be the last one left. Now, I I love that bit of the speech. Yeah. uh, Because it's almost like post-shadowing where it's like... It is. We know he ends up in the cell and here she's saying like, you're going to end up in the cell... And it's it not only does she so say well. Not only does she say that you end up in a cell, she describes exactly what has to happen to get him there, mm-hmm. and that is so good because it's like you already know where he's going to be. Now we're going to tell you exactly what's going to happen to mm-hmm. him, and it's like his entire world is going to shatter. And it's also this great thing of like, hey, you were told, you were told yeah. this is exactly what's going to happen. Yeah, but. You were warned. The rest of the speech doesn't really do it for me because okay. she's like, there's reality and there's fantasy, mm-hmm. but what if they were swapsies? <laughs> and my my counter to hypothetical questions like that are always like, mm-hmm. okay, well, what if dogs could rap? <laughs> like an equally unlikely and just theoretical thing. Like, right. Uh, of course she ends up being right, but at the same time, it's like her, her whole point is like, 
Yeah, what if reality wasn't? Okay, here here's my counter-argument to that. Sure. I don't think that what she's saying is as simple as what you're making it out to be. Okay. In From my perspective, what she's saying is the sane and the insane are a matter of what is acceptable It's a matter to of people. who's writing the definition. Who's writing the definition, exactly. So when she says that the sane and the insane could easily switch place if the insane were to become the majority, what she means is if enough people believe a thing to be true and they decide... Like, let's go back in history. If enough people decide that the man in the sky believes that they should do a certain thing and not another thing, and some people are doing the other thing, a bunch of people can come together and decide to kill the people doing the other thing, and somehow society decides that's a sane and rational decision. And the man in the sky, of course, is World War One flying ace, the Red Baron. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. As long as we're on the same page. As long as we're on the same page. As they're driving, uh, Styles mm-hmm. takes over the wheel. Yes. And she ends up going through a Willy Wonka hell tunnel. <laughs> yes. She ends up driving the, the, the whole street disappears she's driving through through a void a a cloudy void of space and lightning and then ends up coming out the other side of a of a bridge tunnel in hobbs end in the daylight Mm -hmm. and it is a covered bridge a covered bridge that's what it's called and it is one of the coolest most cosmic horror sequences uh in movies it's great and what we're going to see is a shift eventually where Mm -hmm. The movie is front-loaded with exposing Styles to these horrors. Mm-hmm. Styles, uh, Sam Neill is very much the Scully, where he's like, this isn't happening. And Styles oh. is like, no, it is happening. And much like Scully, he continues to insist that this is not happening well past which, any rational person would. Which, which was another problem I had on this watch, is I just got a little tired of that. And again, there's yeah. an explanation for it. There's a, yeah. But at the same time, I'm like, Really? Yeah. Like, you can only push the meta-narrative so far. I feel Especially like, when you are not aware of it yet. I feel like when the movie comes together in the end, it all makes sense. But it when does. you're watching it, it can't. you can get pretty pissed off at John Trent for just being so obtuse. Yes. But what were you saying? I think I said what I was going to say. Oh, okay. I will just say that the editor is a man... The editor of this movie is a man named Edward A. Editor. Warshilka. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure how to say your last name, Ed. I'm sorry. But uh, he is a workhorse editor. He's If you have seen something, he's probably edited it in Hollywood. 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, well, not that one. Okay. But uh, Star Wars. Probably. Okay. Um, but uh, he's, he's edited a whole shit ton of things on TV and, and movies. And uh, his editing in this movie is absolutely fucking fantastic. Oh, yeah, it's great. Uh, I think the editing often makes the film in a lot of scenes. Uh, once in Hobbs End, if it were possible, the movie gets even weirder and more creepy. With more creepy shit starts happening, phantom children, bloody axes just sitting around, mm-hmm. uh, everything in the town, Styles recognizes from one of... Uh, Sutter Kane's books. Yes. Every 
individual detail. She can even name squeaky boards in the floor at the motel that they had. Yes, at. which is where they head to. Yes. And it is staffed by the quintessential 90s old lady actress. Frances Bay. Frances Bay. Yes. Uh, famous for her old Bay seasoning because she is old and she is Bay. <laughs> Precisely. Now, Frances Bay is a, as as you said, is a quintessential '90s adorable old woman. She was the grandmother in Happy Gilmore. Right, right, and she, for me, steals every scene she's in in this movie. She's fantastic. She gets to do so much weirder, creepier shit in this film than I feel than I, as far as I'm aware, she ever got to do in anything else. At least in film, we don't know what her personal life is like. Right. She could have been a weird, creepy oh pervert. God. I'm uh, sure she was into some fucked up stuff. I'm sure. I'm talking tubes. <laughs> You're talking tubes. I'm talking tubes. <laughs> just just tubes, though. Yeah. yeah. Check out my band camp for my album, my blues album, Talking Tubes. <laughs> uh, I talk about uh, sex tubes. I talk right. about tubal ligations. Yes. I talk about uh, Meet the Hollowheads tubes. Meet the Hollowheads. I'm tube, not tube talking world. about these things. I'm bluesing about them. You're bluesing about them. Uh, and her character name is Mrs. Pickman, which is another Lovecraft reference. Lovecraft, Pickman's model. Pickman's model, which uh, I have never read, but I have seen the Night Gallery episode based on it, and it was good. I have played the Fallout 4 mission based on Pickman's model. There's a Fallout 4 mission based on Pickman's model? Yeah. Oh, weird. Fallout, uh, the new Fallout's like to contain a lot of Lovecraft le- references. Weird. At least uh, one per Bethesda game. One, just just one per Bethesda game. You don't want to over, overwhelm yeah. them. They look out their hotel window and see the evil church from one of his books. Oh, I love this church. It's a very well-designed church. Serious question. Okay. Let's say you had to fuck a building. <laughs> okay. I had to fuck a building. In your top ten. Yes. Because I'm sure you have at least a top 500. <laughs> is yes. this church in that top ten? It's a beautiful church. It is a beautiful church. It is a beautiful church. Man, I... See, I'm really... My kink is I'm really into older buildings. Okay. I'm I'm like an old, old building chaser. So I, I have to say that this church... It's a little bit too young for me. It's it's very it's very clean on the outside. It's very clean is is what I'm saying. Um, okay. Yeah. You want a dirtier girl? I want a dirtier girl. Like I would I would probably go like in my top five. I would say is probably Petra. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's a good one. That's, that's a, a real that's, fucking that's a, old. That's a real yeah, real a fucking real, hot. That's a real gilf. Yeah. Real, it's a real gilf. gilf building. To real fuck. gilf building to fuck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> What about like St. Peter's Basilica? Oh my god. Oh my god. I shouldn't have worn sweatpants for this oh, podcast. Man. Oh yeah, you're you're just you first through your jeans. <laughs> uh, or your sweatpants as you previously established. Yeah, as I previously wearing. established. But you yeah. in between those lines, you put on a pair of jeans <laughs> to try to contain your erection. Yeah, I, I tried. Massive fail. Massive failure. Epic fail. Epic fail. As I'm sure the kids still still say. Still say. Still say. But I love the fuck. Eventually, they 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 see the church out the window. I thought you were about to say I love the fuckability of this church. <laughs> I mean, I don't fuck buildings. I'm not a prevert like you. <laughs> but this uh, this what I love about this church is yeah. the unreality of it. It's just like in this field. 
Yeah. It's in this field, and I'm sure this is a this must be a practical location. Like they must have found this Maybe. weird, isolated Russian Orthodox church mm-hmm. because there are like sidewalks leading up to it. Yeah. If it were if it were created for the movie, they would have it completely isolated, I believe. Sure. So I think this must be a practical location. Basing that off of nothing, aside from gut Right, instinct. yeah, we didn't look up but the origins of this particular building. In the this film. ornate, out-of-place church in this field is so fucking effective. And it's in this small church. town environment, too. Yes. Yeah, it's it's absolutely fantastic. As they go up to the evil church to try and uh, investigate it. I A guess. mob comes. A mob shows up, led by Vigo the Carpathian from Ghostbusters 2. Oh, that is that actually Vigo the Carpathian? That is actually Vigo the Carpathian. He looked from a lot like him. Too, yes. Uh, that explains it. Yes. Oh. The actor's name is actually Wilhelm von Homburg. And he is my. I don't know if he would be secondary or tertiary, but he is the best no name actor in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> You've heard of colorblind casting. Yes. This movie is nationality blind casting. Yes. Even though everyone's supposed to be American, in most of the Hobbs End stuff is all happening in New Hampshire and in, in, in New England, you have German Jurgen Proc I'm sorry, Jurgen Proc now. Jurgen Proc now. You have New Zealand accented Sam Neill. You have Lobo an- Morongo to you. That's a reference to Boyfriend School, which we will get into someday. <laughs> okay. And we have uh, poor Vigo the Carpathian playing. I don't even remember his name in the movie because I, I don't guess, know. I always uh, think of him as Vigo. Yes. And he's talking, and he he, they, he leads the mob up to the church because his son Johnny Boy has been Johnny. kidnapped by Sutter Kane. And he's supposed to be like the all-American dad raising Ju- the all-American kid Johnny Boy. He's supposed to be Boy. Harry Dean Stanton in the concentration <laughs> camp of Red Dawn, <laughs> screaming, avenge me. If this movie had been made this year, this part would have been played by Clancy Brown. But, yeah. Yeah. But uh, Actually, I could see Sutter Kane being played by Clancy Brown because he, oh he has the same hair as Jurgen Prock now. Sure. And I assume that's what they would base casting off that's, of. That's definitely what they would base casting off of. Absolutely. Speaking of which, as he's calling after Johnny Boy and he briefly sees him in the doorway before uh, the doors close and reopen, and here we have... Neil Gaiman. <laughs> as Sutter Kane. Just... Ju- Jurgen Prock now as Sutter Kane as Neil Gaiman with fabulous flowing locks. They are not, he has a tight, curly yes. uh, hair, yes. much like your own. Thank um, you. Much like Clancy Brown. Much like Clancy Brown, as he's established, yes. Um, but yeah, Sutter Kane looks like fucking Neil Gaiman. He really, really does. Gaiman, Gaiman, I've never, sh- I'm, I'm never pretty sure. sure it's Gaiman, but whatever. Yeah. He is a gay man. <laughs> he's. Uh, married and has several children. Well, <laughs> hasn't stopped a lot of gay men. That's very true. That's very true. One thing about the concept behind this movie I wanted to talk about, since we now have met Sutter Kane, uh, however briefly. Oh, uh, and he chases the way the mob by sicking some hellhounds on them. Yes. <laughs> some uh, Dobermans. Some, some evil Dobermans. Kane is, as we've discussed, very much based on Lovecraft. And, but also Stephen King. And also Stephen King, the popularity of his books, not to mention the typeface in which his name is is typed on the covers. The is New very based on that centrality, which could also yes. be Lovecraft. Very much so. But one part of the inspiration for this character that 
is not brought up a lot, but I think is very central to the ideas behind this movie is L. Ron Hubbard. Really? Yeah. I never heard about this until I was doing research for this episode. But according to the writer, Michael DeLuca, he had the idea of what if you had an author writing with the Cthulhu mythos, with the fans and popularity and reach of Stephen King, but with the fans believing in him the way that L. Ron Hubbard's fans believed in him. Okay. So L. Ron Hubbard was a sci-fi writer who wrote a bunch of shit that and eventually got founded Scientology. coalesced into this religion he began, or a cult, if you want to be technical, called Scientology. And in a way, his fans' faith in the stuff he made up resulted in creating a force in the world that actually affects not only pop culture, because a lot of actors are Scientologists, mm -hmm. but just political decisions. They pay money to politicians and shit like that. The the sh bullshit this sci-fi writer was coming up with eventually ended up affecting the real world through his fans' faith in his shit. Fascinating. And that was... And he was like, what if you took that and Stephen King and H.P. Lovecraft, put them all together in a soup, and then you made it so that their faith actually makes, not only does it actually affect the world, but it makes what they read real. Would you eat a soup made out of Stephen King, H.P. Lovecraft, and L. Ron Hubbard? Uh, I am deeply uh, disturbed by the concept of cannibalism, cannibalism so I don't. Really? It. Yeah. You don't want to taste human flesh. I don't. And we've discussed this before, and Have you think we? I'm lying. I think you're lying. Yeah, you said that before. You think anyone who doesn't want to taste human flesh is lying. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to taste I know flesh. you would, and I don't get that. <laughs> I mean, I kind I... of get it. I get the curiosity, but... To me, that like is deeply upsetting. That well, idea, not you. The we'll work idea. on that. We'll work on that. You'll get me. We'll get you to the point where you're like, man, fuck yeah, human flesh. <laughs> <laughs> so Trent is very shaken up by the events they just witnessed, and he wants to call the event off immediately. Mm -hmm. He wants to get in the car and just drive and get get home. Styles admits that Kane's initial disappearance was, in fact, a, a publicity hoax stunt. and a publicity stunt. But like a rom-com, what started out as a lie has become so much more. Oh. She says that they're living out the plots of not only Kane's published works, but also his most recent unpublished work as well. In the Mouth of Madness, one of the story elements in that book was that in Hobbs End, the town's children are infected with some sort of disease that turns them into monsters. Then... The, the rest of the towns, lupus, exactly. The rest of the townspeople then get infected, and this eventually leads to the end of the world as a result of some ancient evil from beyond our world. Very Lovecraftian con concept. If you were a cosmic horror. If I was a. Okay, if I'm an old one, got it. No, you're not an old one. Oh, I'm not that cool. Okay. You're a new cosmic horror on the block. Uh, okay. Would you be upset? And mm -hmm. how hard it is to break into the industry. Because it's always a <laughs> it's always about the old ones. And you're uh, a new one. I'm you're a new, a new kid on the block. Right, right. And right. you just want to be like, yeah, I can blow your mind if you give me a chance. <laughs> I'm a millennial new one where all the old ones they they made their 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 own 
uh, existence and then they shut the door behind them mm-hmm. and I can't get into the business. Yeah. I think I would be very frustrated with that. I think that that would be part of... I think I would use that to fuel the madness I would give my followers. I would be like just really mad about the whole thing and whenever I did get any followers I would be that much more cruel to them based on that. Well that's art. That's art is using your bullshit yeah. to create. There you go. There you go. This this is all about the art we made along the way. Mm-hmm. Styles out of nowhere while trying to convince Trent to stay and figure this shit out starts just trying to make out with him. Mm-hmm. Which again is because this is her function in the story. Yes. There's she is the woman. She is the woman in the story and therefore she's supposed to end up in a relationship with Trent. Trent has no interest in this. No. Which means that he's actually either not fulfilling his role in the story very well or Sutter Kane is just fucking with him. Yes. Uh, which is very in character for Sutter Kane to do as we find as we will find out later. Trent refuses uh, her advances, refuses to buy any of the shit she's spewing, and storms out. He runs into Mrs. Pickman again in one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie, which is why I'm talking about it, even though it has almost nothing to do with the plot. Oh, this is one of the best images in the movie. Yes. Earlier when they were entering the hotel, Stiles was talking about a painting Mm -hmm. that was in the lobby. And Trent comes down and starts talking about the painting with Mrs. Pickman. Mrs. Pickman now has circles around her eyes and has become much more sinister, distracted, and intimidating. And we were also told previously that in Kane's stories, Mrs. Pickman murdered her husband. Murdered her husband and chopped him up with an axe. Mm -hmm. And it is very... I can't even say implied. It's basically stated outright that there's something behind... The, the 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 front desk at the hotel yes. that she is hiding and trying to keep quiet. I mean, we see it. We eventually, eventually see it in a, in a, in another couple of moments. We see that it is her husband, naked, handcuffed to her ankle, whimpering and crying. Such a bizarre. It's just a flash. It's just a flash. And it never really comes back. It does come back later, kind of ish. Uh, but af but even before that, Francis Bay is so good in this scene. I am more intimidated by her than I am of some of... By Sutter Kane. By Sutter Kane, by Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Just this... By just, Anthony Perkins in, Shine, in, in, in Psycho. She is so fucking scary in this, in this scene. I've seen a lot of strange imagery. Yeah. Like, I've seen a lot of shit. Yeah. And I've seen this movie multiple times. I might not remember it, mm-hmm. but I've seen it multiple times. Right. And, a naked old man mm-hmm. handcuffed to the ankle of an old woman yes is such a bizarre and upsetting image it's very like, upsetting yeah uh it, it's fucking perfect mhm and and it's almost like a thrown it's away wonderful. thing it, it's barely a part of the movie yeah it's just again to build this this essence of dread and mm-hmm. uh, horror and of wrongness again it has very little to do with the plot it's just another thing Another one of these side things that they add onto the pile just to increase the horror, increase the nightmare quality of what you're experiencing as a viewer. So Styles goes off on her own to investigate the church. As she enters the church, there's an upside-down cross in the church, which is disappointing to me. The upside-down cross, for those who don't know, is a common trope in horror movies to be like, Oh no, they put the cross upside down, that's mocking the crucifixion of Christ. The upside-down cross is actually a Catholic concept, 
uh, one of the early disciples of Jesus, I do not, do not remember which one, was also crucified because crucifixion was a common execution tactic of the ancient Romans. And he was crucified upside down because he did not want to be seen as being put on the same level as Jesus Christ. He thought that was disrespectful. So he was crucified upside down, and that's what the upside down cross signifies. It signifies the fact that you are not as good as Jesus, but you are still worshiping him. So in so, a way, it's more respectful It's yes than an actual cross, because the cross is... It's definitely more respectful than a, a cross with studs you get a hot topic. But it's it yeah. So this this is a horror trope that really bugs me. And yeah, for a movie that I love so much, it was very disappointing to see it in this one. But it's because the people who write that into horror movies are not theologians. They're not, and, and they're instead not have just watched yeah. other fucking horror movies. And exactly. Like, this is the spooky cross. Exactly. I, if if there's one major problem that is has infected movies over the years is that um, so many people write movies nowadays, myself included, whenever I try and write something, they write movies based on other movies they've seen rather than life. Movie making has become a weird sort of echo chamber of people shouting at each other. Oh, yeah. For uh, generations. The filmmaking is so incestuous. Yes. With the uh, king incest being Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> he, is, he is the king of incest. We're going to keep calling him that from now on. King of yeah. Incest, Quentin Tarantino. If only feet could be brothers and sisters. <laughs> Actual quote from Quentin Tarantino. She finds Kane in his, his like personal chamber, his like little writing room, mm -hmm. which looks almost like it's inside of a human mouth. It's uh, The walls are so wet. There's mm -hmm. a wooden door in the corner that's covered in, in moss and slime. Such wet walls. Such wet walls. Wall, the walls, wettest walls. Walls so wet we would not see until the movie Cajillionaire. <laughs> Which I understand you don't know that reference. I don't. You have not seen Cajillionaire. There's some wet walls. There's that. some wet walls. Good. The wooden door that has all the moss on it is buckling as if something is beating against I it. I love, I love this wet breathing door. It's so it's good. It's so fucking awesome. It's so awesome. It's, yeah, the wet breathing door is one of the coolest things in this movie. If you... <laughs> I can't wait for this. Let's say uh -huh. that your door started, like, uh, sweating. Okay. And started breathing. Yes. How would you feel? Uh, I would be very upset, and I would probably want to get out of that house. Oh, I'm sorry. It's cool when it's in the movie. <laughs> yeah, because it's fake. <laughs> it's cool when the guy in deerskin stabs a knife, a, 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 a bayonet through the top of a car and into a guy's head. Okay. It's we, not as cool when that happens in real life. We can both agree that movie violence <laughs> is not the same as real life violence. Yeah. I'm just saying... Wet breathing doors. If you're gonna like it in a movie, it's not hurting you. <laughs> I'm sure it doesn't smell great. I like it in the movie because I'm scared of it in the movie. I would also be scared. I would be more scared of it in real life because it could hurt me. Then I would feel more in tune with the macrocosm of the universe that <laughs> the domicile I was dwelling within was a living thing as well. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. And we uh, dwell inside our mothers for nine months. <laughs> you can't dwell inside a living, breathing, sweating domicile for the rest of your life. I wasn't very aware of 
the pot, the fact that I was in there when I was in there. Okay, well, we have different experiences from our mother's womb. Oh, uh, you remember every detail of I that time? I remember every little thing. Gross. I did a lot of Sudoku. <laughs> and that was... That was before it was even a thing in America. Right, yeah. You were a pioneer in the Sudoku I was thing. very into Japanese shit even then. Right, and this is impressive because as we've discussed earlier, you are an unfrozen caveman mm-hmm. film fan. So yes. this was ages ago. This was in the time of the mammoth. Right. <laughs> so Styles has a bad time with Sutter Kane. <laughs> Styles has a bad time with Sutter Kane. Uh, he says, and this is again one of my another one of my favorite speeches... He says, for years, he thought he was making his stories up, but really they were, and he refers to the wet breathing door, they were telling him what to write and how to make it real. He refers to the door. Style seems to have lost all free will at this point. She's just sort of like a a panting, sex-obsessed puppet, just standing around yes. the room waiting for him to push her around. Here is where women are often used in horror as just like, Voodoo dolls for terror. Yes, like you just that's a good inflict things. It. You you inflict things on them. Yeah, and here it does something interesting with it, where it's like, again, in the front half, we're dealing with Styles as the recipient for all the horrors in Hobbs End, mm-hmm. and now we get the tw- the transition where it's like, yeah, you're just a pawn. Yeah, I, she's, I'm. She's just a cipher for him. I made you feel horror because I need to get to the horror that I'm going to inflict on trent yes and not that trent is any more real than styles right but but trent is ultimately the focus for the torture styles role in the story was to get trent there trent's role in the story is to take sutter kane's work to the world yes but ultimately because again this is all the work of sutter kane yes trent's role is to suffer right for whatever reason yeah. This is almost a personal hell mm-hmm. developed for John Trent. Yes. Maybe not even specifically, just that Sutter Kane, as horror authors will do, right. I'm going to const- I'm going to build this character just to torture them. Just just to fuck just to fuck with them. Exactly. It basically like Stephen King writing The Shining, he creating Jack Torrance. Jack yes. Torrance is the 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 Sam Trent. Mm-hmm. Uh or the John Trent in this in this the, situation. Yeah, uh, again, it's <sighs> Again, it feels silly to talk about because, of course, a character can only follow the path yeah. that their creator lays out for them. But again... But this movie draws attention to that idea. This draws attention to the idea that you are manifesting something just to torture it. The idea that, again, going back to Styles' of speech, that mm-hmm. fantasy and reality have a thin barrier behind them. Yeah. Jack Torrance is cre- Jack Torrance has no chance of redemption. Jack Torrance has no chance to become a better father. Jack better Torrance husband is on rails towards his eventual doom. Exactly. Yeah. Which is what Trent is. It's a commentary on how horror authors create things just to torture them. And there is there is I don't remember who said this. There was some uh, artist or, or critic who once said that film is an empathy machine. It is does you you watch. The idea is to get an audience member to look at a movie and feel empathy for whoever you put in the lead role. Mm-hmm. This movie is taking that idea and pushing it a step further where you are not only just empathizing for a character going through extreme situations, you are empathizing with a character who is being written to deal yes. with extreme situations. It's and, taking the empathy uh, machine that is filmed, that is all art, 
in some to some extent and pushing it to an nth degree really what this movie does and we're sort of getting ahead of ourselves yeah but what this movie does we've been getting ahead of ourselves the whole time true yeah what this movie does is it takes the idea of elder gods from lovecraft's mythos yes it's like what if they were more akin to judeo-christian gods where they had control over individual lives yes also transliterating that into the role of the author. Yes. And this idea of... Well, the idea of the, the artist being the god of the world he creates is one that has been talked about yes. a lot. And I, I've talked about very briefly the fact that I am I'm, uh, I am still a Christian, even though I, I'm very critical of the, of the Christian church. And I, I believe that artistic creation is, is something that when God says in the, in the, in, in the, in the Bible about creating us in his, in his own image, that's a yes. big part of that, that in, that in feeling of creation, that feeling of, of, of art is something in, in, uh, that's very close to God in my mind. This is getting much more deeper than we need to go on to the show. Sure. But yeah, you're right. The act yeah. of creation, which is the very start of the Bible. Yes. Is an artistic act. He's forming yeah. out of, dust out of clay out of bone right eve like he you can't tell me that the sky is that color for our for for purely evolutionary reasons yes. to, to me that that feels like an artistic choice <laughs> but eventually styles comes back to the room yes styles comes back to the room she is in a much worse state than she was when she left Sutter Kane. She seems to be in a almost a whirling dervish. She, she, she is unstable. She unstable. is shouting, I'm losing me. I'm losing me. Which is a great line. It's a great line. And here is the one bone of contention I had to pick with her performance. Okay. I do not like this scene. Okay. I, this I, is something that I saw in a lot of reviews of this movie. I love this scene. I love the idea. I love mm -hmm. the line, I'm losing me. Yes. Because this is her... And she even says, don't read the book. Don't read the book. This is her realizing like, oh, fuck, I'm not real. Yeah. I'm a Sutter Kane creation. I'm and losing I'm, the, who, what makes me a person. I'm trying to hold on to my reality. Yes. But I'm, I'm, I'm losing because I'm yes. against impossible forces. Mm -hmm. And... I don't know whether to blame her or blame John Carpenter sure. or blame whoever, but this the scene could, didn't sing to you. It did not. I, I wanted it to. It yeah. was close. This would have been so chilling mm -hmm. if she did not sound like she had just come from the fucking dentist. I don't want to agree with you, but I have to. Like that, you're you're absolutely right. I get what. I believe the actress is going for. Sure. Like, she is disoriented. She yeah. is She is off balance. She is being torn between two worlds. Mm -hmm. So I get that she's trying to be, like, this spacey, this sort of, like... Not like she's all... not all there. Exactly. Yeah. But it doesn't work for me. I want it to so bad. Everything about it is right. And again, I don't know whether to blame her or sure. Carpenter. It could Film easily be... Film is a collaborative be, process. There's it plenty is. of blame to spread around <laughs> when something doesn't work. Although I ultimately believe it is the responsibility of the director to yes. rein in actors' performance. To either rein... Actors' performance. Rein in or push Guide. up. Yes. Like, uh, again, going back to Mulholland Drive, apparently David Lynch had to do a lot of work with... I'm sorry, what's the main actress's name? Naomi Watts. Naomi Watts to push her to be more and more over the top, far past her comfort zone. Gotcha. This is according to her, uh, by the way. I'm not 
speaking out of turn. This is what she said. This wasn't a scuttlebutt you heard directly from the Hollywood pipeline. Yeah, this isn't what I heard on the streets. So Trent goes downstairs to try and find Mrs. Pickman, trying to figure out what the hell's going on. It should be pointed out Mm -hmm. that even at this point, Sam Neill does not believe what's going on. Yeah, Trent, He's Trent still is, like, is refusing. Hmm, this is this is just tricks. This is just yep. tricks. There was even a scene we skipped over earlier where he met up with Vigo the Carpathian again and accused him of being an actor. Uh, well, the big Vigo the Carpathian scene is coming up. It is coming it's up, fucking yeah. tour de force performance. We we will, yeah, one of the, again, one of the, I keep saying one of the best scenes in the movie. They're all good. They're all They're great. all good. But Trent... Tries to find Mrs. Pickman. He can't find her downstairs. He goes down into the basement. She's become a an eldritch horror. She's become tentacles are growing out of her, and her, I her husband is still handcuffed to her leg, and she is chopping him to pieces with an axe, just like she did in the story. And again, she is transformed. There's like tentacles coming out of her midriff. And I I I said this to you when we watched this originally. Yeah, when we watched this together originally. Yes. I wish so hard that Francis Bay had gotten to be in, like, this fucking big old rig. Yeah. This big old tentacle rig. Because that must have been the idea of that, like, I'm getting to play an evil character. I'm not the sweet grandma. Yes. I get to be a monster. Mm-hmm. Must be so fun for Which she absolutely sells in the previous scene. Yeah. No, she's fucking fantastic. Yeah. Like I said, she scares me more than most movie psychopaths scare me in that scene. But in this scene, it's a puppet. And... I feel, and I think that you agree with me, that we see maybe a tad too much of it, and it kind of looks like uh, an animatronic at your local haunted house ride at the carnival. It's not that bad. Okay. It clearly looks fakey. Yeah. But I still enjoyed it because, again... I still enjoyed it, too. Again, it's this, it's this iconic old woman. Yes. And maybe this and is the because, benefit... And because the movie has made you aware of her and who she is and attached you to the character in previous scenes, it doesn't hurt the film as much as it could have. No. Otherwise. It it still works. The scene still works. There is just a slight bit of uncanny valley with the way that the puppet works in the scene. You can just say that you think it looks fakey. You think it doesn't. Yeah, it looks, you think it it looks it a little work. fakey. I still, um, I still think it does work. It just doesn't work as well as it could have. Like that scene in the diner that we talked about earlier. It still works. It could have worked better. It still works for you. You're just not buying it as a movie watcher. Sure. Whereas I don't. When I watch horror. Yeah. Uh, now that I'm on meds and not borderline schizophrenic, whatever. Sure. <laughs> When I watch horror movies, I'm not like, I'm expecting to be scared. I'm like, okay, show me what you got. Show me your imagery. Show me your story. Show me what you got. Show me what you got. Uh, whereas you still get scared by horror movies. I do actually get scared by so horror movies. So when you yeah. saw this monster, you were not like, you you went, I'm not feeling this. I'm not actually, as engaged it's, it's as I opposite. could be. It's the opposite. Because I go to horror into horror movies with both mindsets. I go into horror movies like, take me on a journey and spook me. And I'm also like, let's see what technical shit they have for me today. Gotcha. Uh, Did so you... on, a, on an emotional level, the scene absolutely worked for me. I actually felt... The jitters I was supposed to feel like it 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 was spooky. It did it, it did me the spooks the way I wanted it to. On the technical level, I was like, "Oh, that looks unfortunate." Uh, was was where my brain was on the other side. I was fine with it. Did you note who did the effects for this? 
Fuck, I meant to, and I forgot there to was write it someone down. whoever the special effects people were. They're not people that we're particularly familiar with. I do know that they took this film very seriously because they knew that because this is a John Carpenter film and it's in the Apocalypse trilogy. Although I don't know if they knew that at the time, they knew just from the John Carpenter connection that this was going to be compared to one of the most impressive puppetry horror movies of all time. The Thing, Puppet Master. Oh. Okay. oh. <laughs> And they worked very hard to make sure the puppets, A, looked nothing like the puppets in the thing, and two, were the best possible things that they could do. And those seem part, like contradictory uh, <laughs> endeavors where... They just didn't want them to look like the monsters from the thing. The like special the, effects in the thing are some of the best I've ever fucking seen. Oh, so. yeah. No, they knew that. Uh, so, like, they, they wanted to make sure that they were the best that they could do, but also that the designs didn't look like the thing. Because they didn't want to look like they were just copying off of them. Gotcha. The special effects, for the most part, in this movie are actually very good. It's just this one second where I think they showed the puppet for just a, a tad too long, in my opinion. Okay. Styles is also turning into a monster, though we don't necessarily see what kind. No. It's kind of like a Beetlejuice thing where we see her outline and like some things coming yeah. out of it. She comes out in, in a moment that would have been much more powerful, again, if she had been more distraught in the previous scene. She comes in and attacks Trent with a with a big old rictus grin on her face. Very evil dead. She throws him through a window. And then some, a note about this movie. I don't believe I ever brought this up because I think I only discovered this after the fact in our Cigarette Burns episode. Cigarette Burns is not only similar to this movie in aspects of talking about media and the media we consume and what if the media could affect reality in some way. But it's also similar in the fact that it's a Lovecraft oh. reference. The plot of Cigarette Burns, the arc of Cigarette Burns, is very close to the arc of The Call of Cthulhu. Yes. And the arc of this movie, particularly the, this section of the movie, is very close to Lovecraft's story Shadow Over Innsmouth. Mm -hmm. And this is where we see the strongest similarity where John Trent breaks out of the hotel, which has now been invaded by the monsters of the town, mm -hmm. runs into town, and discovers a whole procession of monster people, half people, half monsters, wandering around the town uh, to in, to his to his horror. Although, unlike in the Lovecraft original, one of them runs up to him and says, Fuck you! In a cute little monster <laughs> voice, and then scutters away. <laughs> which is really fucking funny. I don't know if it was meant to be funny, but it's very funny. I have a feeling it was. Trent, in order to get away from the monsters, ducks into a bar, and meets backs up. Meets back up. Meets backs up. No, you are right the first time. That's good right. grammar. <laughs> Meets backs up with Vigo the Carpathian, who is now much more torn up. Yeah, uh, he's having bloody. a tough time. He's having he's a having tough a, time. He's having a bad mental health day. He says, I don't remember... What I don't remember what came first, first. The town or the story. Or the story. He says, reality is not what it used to be. And fulfills Stiles' prophecy by telling... Trent, you're alone. Uh, he takes a shotgun, puts it under his chin, and Trent says, No, don't! And he replies, I have to. He wrote me this way. Great line. Great oh fucking sequence. Just, this whole fucking sequence. This fucking actor yeah. is so goddamn good. Yes. He should have been in more than a fucking painting. He should have... <laughs> Should have been more than this and a an underrated Ghostbusters sequel. But yeah, that, that line absolutely chills me to the bone every time I hear it. I got chills saying it. It's so 
That scene is so fucking good. Obviously, Trent just saw a man blow up his own head with a shotgun, so he's mm-hmm. a little bit upset. He is. He runs out of the bar immediately, and of course, is ap- immediately encounters the monsters again, including Styles, who tries to punch him. So he punches her out, loads her into his car, and tries to escape the town. Yeah, he punches Styles a lot in like a five-minute <laughs> stretch. He's. It's like a fucking UFC fight. <laughs> Or he's just fucking wailing on her goddamn face. Uh, where he's just fucking... Where he's just fucking wailing on her goddamn face. Just wailing on her goddamn face. Styles, as they're trying to drive away, she eats the car keys before he can start the car. He has to now start here's, with a screwdriver. Again, here's a where I wish the movie... I She attempts to eat swallow the car keys. Yes. I don't think she does... But I would have loved an effect of the keys going down her gullet. Oh, that would have been so good. That would have been so good. And more, more, as as, uh, they say on Thought Slime's YouTube channel, more wet puppets, please. (laughs) Trent is able to get the car moving with a screwdriver, but the car is brought to a halt when Styles won't stop trying to kiss him. Ah, we've all been there. We've all been there. She and she tells him once again, like uh, Kane is Sutter Kane is writing me to to kiss you right now. Mm Twists herself around, her head is upside down, and she's crawl backwards, crab walking like the Exorcist, and tells Trent he can't leave because Kane has a job for him. He has to spread the good word about Jesus Christ. He d- <laughs> <laughs> almost. We'll get we'll we'll get to the religious shit in a minute. Kane keeps trying to leave the town, but can't. It's a it's a spatial loop. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like in, uh, just like in asteroids, where you go off the edge of the screen and you come right back on the other side. I was going to talk about the movie we just uh, talked about recently, um, which I've already forgotten. Vivarium. Vivarium. Already forgot the name of it. I like this movie a lot more than Vivarium. No, this is much better than Vivarium. <laughs> yes. Eventually, he has a car accident and passes out. Wakes up in a confessional with Kane in the priest station. Let's uh, let's uh, dig back into our Sutter King collection. Absolutely. Let's do that. Uh, what do you have for us? What do I have? Okay, so much like Lovecraft, again, he's very much based on Lovecraft, uh, Sutter Kane was very interested in telling stories about his cats. Okay. Was uh, Sutter Kane's cats also named after the N-word? They all were named with the N-word. Like then, George Foreman's children, except instead of George Foreman, it's the N-word. Exactly, yeah. It's they, they all were named the N-word, and then a number. Like, okay. He was like N-word 1, N-word 2, N-word 3. He had a lot of cats. So he he called he did uh, various stories about cats, including a play on Lovecraft's famous story, the the rats in the walls, the cats in the malls. Play on the famous, infamous, of course, Call of Cthulhu, the Call of Cat Hulu, oh. which since he died before Hulu even came out, was a very prophetic story. It was. Uh, I'm a fan of both those stories, but particularly the Call of Cat Hulu for its uh, since it's aged so well, it was really ahead of its time, and the idea of there being a secret website run by cats that humans can't access without turning into cats themselves is like my secret nightmare I think if I had the choice to access a website that would turn me into a cat Mm -hmm. I would definitely do that I have a deep fear of pooping in boxes so I I would not well I guess I know what to make on my next haunted house (laughs) just a bunch of poop boxes just you, I'm going to feed you a bunch of, like, prunes and 
apricots <laughs> and shit like that. Oh, God. And the only place you have to go, plastic box. Plastic box. Oh, God. Now, one of my Why favorite, are we friends? <laughs> one of my favorite unsung Sutter Kane stories. Of course, yeah. Is the Bone People. The, the Bone People. I, now, I, I think I've heard of this one. This visionary story mm-hmm, mm-hmm. imagines what it would be like if we didn't have skin. I see. Okay. Yeah. And everyone so just... like an a, alternate history. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what would the Civil War be like if we were all skeletons? If we were all skeletons. So no, no muscle either? Just, skele- just skeletons? I guess. Yeah. Now that I think about it. <laughs> That if we were all just skeletons, racism wouldn't exist. Yeah. And then the Civil War wouldn't have happened. But he takes a like a weird, like very disturbing path where he makes it a bit where he says it really was about states' rights. It's yeah, no, yeah. he's <laughs> Sutter Kane is super about states' rights. Very Sutter... conservative, our yes. Sutter Kane. He's like uh that's why he wants the old ones to come back because he wants to make Earth great again. Exactly. He wants to go back before a time before critical race theory. <laughs> so yeah, Kane delivers yet another incredible speech about the difference between popular fiction and, and religion. He says that more believe, people believe in my books than the Bible. Which is essentially just Cain doing the Beatles, I'm bigger than Jesus. Thing. Pretty much, that's that's all that that is. But, you know, it still sounds really creepy and profound coming out of Jürgen Prochnow's mouth. Yes. Who, as some critics pointed out, his performance is almost entirely exposition. It is, but he delivers it so good you don't care. At least I don't. I mean, at least going off of the Dark Tower books. Yeah. Which... These elements came far after this movie was produced. Mm-hmm. But when Stephen King wrote himself into the Dark Tower books, it was sort of like, I'm exposition, I'm the one controlling the story, like this oh, is sort okay. of my thing. I forgot that he's in the Dark Tower books. Yeah. That makes me they, sad. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't like the first Dark Tower I know. book, but that makes me sad. <laughs> as someone who hitched their wagon to Dark Tower and not Harry Potter. Right, yeah. As far as a seven book series goes... Execution, not great. Yeah. As far as the writer not being a fucking transphobe, I won. You, you did, did not. You did win. He has said that people need to give J.K. Rowling a break on Twitter, though. So. Yeah, well. They're friends. I, don't know. I guess. I'm sure he's just dealing with the difficulty of a friend turning out to be an asshole. That's not, I don't that's think not they're easy. that close of friends. Yeah. I think he's just, like, sort of hedging his bets where, like. Sure. Maybe we could do a crossover between The Shining and The Cursed Child. <laughs> yeah, that's going to go well. He does, in fact, name-check The Old Ones, a very specific Lovecraftian concept in this in this speech, and saying that as people lose touch between the difference of fantasy and reality, The Old Ones will get closer and closer to returning. He tells Trent that he must see and teleports him into his writing room from earlier. Kane finishes his book... Rocking the dad sweater and jeans, which I love, because he actually mm-hmm. looks like a writer. Because <laughs> uh, he looks like fucking Neil Gaiman. Right. Gaiman. Y- yeah, exactly. Uh, he tells Trent that Trent is, in fact, a character he created, which we already spoiled earlier on. Mm-hmm. Uh, that his agent tried to kill Trent to stop him from fulfilling his role in the story, bringing Kane's book to the publisher. He tells him to go back to his world. He points down a long hallway in the back of his chamber. And he says, follow that path, go back to the world. 
I can't hold back. I can't hold them back any longer. Mm -hmm. And then we think, we thought that the door was what was keeping them back, but the door is not a door. Kane himself is the door. Yes. And he rips himself open like paper in one of, in just such an incredibly cool image. He rips himself open like paper. You can see the text of his book on the insides of the pages, leaving a hole into a dark void. And Styles narrates the contents of the book and what Trent is seeing on the other side of the void as he looks into the portal. And I want to point out, I'm not sure who establishes it, but we learn that Kane's agent read In the Mouth of Madness yes. and realized that John Trent was the fucking key yes. to all this unlocking, which is, he did not go insane. He no. was being a hero. Yeah. As most axe murderers are. Right. Yeah. 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 Like Lizzie most Borden. Um, <laughs> there are, the Axemen of New Orleans. There are actual arguments that say that Lizzie Borden was being abused and, and hurt uh, and that her, her the deaths that she perpetrated supposedly perpetrated were entirely justified yeah so he, he rips himself open there's a hole in space and time this is actually a last minute change that carpenter and the writer michael deluca made together hey it's me michael deluca i think we should have some gabagool in there. <laughs> exactly originally at the end when he says go back he then uh opens his book and the entire town folds into the book the entire town is just sucked into the book and kept there. Uh, one of my favorite shots of this film is when we see the reverse side through the book. Like, we're mm-hmm. looking at the, yeah. no, it's, the words on the page, and they're sort of burst open from the uh, outside, and we're looking at Sam Neill looking yeah. through the pages of the book. This it's, movie gets so twisty and so folded in on itself, it's yeah. fucking brilliant. Yeah, no, the the town thing was replaced with this uh, book opening because it was cheaper to do. Mm -hmm. Apparently, Carpenter and DeLuca worked on the change together. They apparently had a great working relationship. Hey, we can't afford Gabagool. Let's go Capicola. (laughs) Exactly. One thing I did notice is that the book pages are apparently talking about a character named Carl. There's no one in the movie named Carl. I don't know who Carl is. And then in one of the most Lovecraftian movie moments of all time... Trent runs as fast as he can down the hall, being pursued by... Dagons. Dagons, Cthulhu's... Uh, Ni- fish Ni- monsters. Nihilarfotheps, all sorts of Lovecraftian demons and monsters. This sequence took 30 puppeteers to film. Oh, man. Uh, Where do you find so many puppeteers? <laughs> In back alleys, oh, man. I assume. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Had my dick sucked by a lot of puppeteers. <laughs> Give them some popcorn. Yeah. <laughs> they'll just fucking they'll just gum you till dusk till dawn. Anything for popcorn, these puppeteers. He ends he falls on his face, he's about to be consumed by the creatures. Yeah. And he wakes up in the middle of the crossroads with and he Robert meets Johnson. The real nightmare. Hayden Christensen. Hayden Christensen. The real the scariest part of the movie, Hayden Christensen as a paper boy, which is a reference to something earlier in the film we skipped. Yes. Hayden Christensen is only there for a few seconds. He tells him... He tells where... him that sand is bad. <laughs> tells him it's coarse. It gets everywhere. And he tells him where the nearest highway is. Trent leaves his manuscript in the middle of the road and heads off to try and get back to civilization. As per tradition in a Carpenter film, John Trent stays 
while he's staying in the motel on his way back to civilization, ends up seeing an old horror movie on the TV. This time, it's Robot Monster. A package arrives at the motel. It's Kane's manuscript, but Trent burns it. The next day, he's on a bus, falling asleep as he pretends to listen to an old lady talking about how many bodies she's seen in her life. And then as he's dreaming, Sutter Kane comes to him and begins talking to him about how he's God. And then he says, you'll see when you wake up. Look around when you wake up. Did I ever tell you that my favorite color is blue? And he wakes up and everything on the bus is blue. I love so goddamn much. It's a great moment. This is such a great, simple trick of production design and editing. It's so fucking good. Yes. I, my only problem with it yeah. is it is revealed that this is a dream as well. Yeah, that's I a wish out. it had just been like, yes, yeah, Sutter Kane, Sutter Kane uh, exerting his will on reality. Now everything's blue. Bada dee, bada do. Yeah, it should have cut from him. So he wakes up. Everything's blue. He's screaming, screaming, screaming. It should have cut to him with the police, like later, like they've taken yeah. him off the bus. And in the back, it's blue. It's blue and balls. And they're like, and they're like, the bus has always been blue, sir. It was blue when they left. It's the blue bus. It's the blue bus, and like the bus is going away. The entire fucking thing is blue. Maybe that would be too silly. I think that would be more effective than having him wake do, up and oh, saying it's an it's a dream again. However, you execute it, as long as it's not a dream. Yeah. I think this, again, the exhortation of mm-hmm. control over reality really hammers home the point that all of this is Sutter Kane's control. Exactly. He's literally just torturing Sutter, John Trent. This is Sutter Kane's world. We're just living in it. And you can even go to the extent where, while Sutter Kane is, he eventually becomes consumed by these old ones. Mm-hmm. You could say even that's not real. Sure. It's just him writing his fantasy or his ultimate horror or whatever. Could be. It's because we are watching a medium that is controlled by a character within the medium. Anything can be done. Yeah. And we can go, sure. Maybe Sutter Kane is not being controlled by the old ones at all. He's just decided Earth has had its time. Let's just talk. I wanted to mention this earlier, but okay. Sutter Kane is such a great fucking name. It is. It's the best. It's better than Stephen King. Like <laughs> part uh, of the reason why this movie has survived as a as a cult hit, of course, because it's good. But part of the reason is that fucking name. Yes, and it's, uh, and do and you read Sutter Kane? Do you read Sutter Kane? Flows off the lips so well. It's a great tagline. Which um, the movie did not use as its tagline, which is crazy. No, but it's still a repeated phrase throughout the the film. Yes, it's fantastic. He goes to Charlton Heston's office to make a, 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 his report. Heston says he has no memory of Styles at all. There's no Styles. I I I, I sent you to get, you you brought me this manuscript fucking three months ago. Three months ago, when he when he says that that Styles doesn't exist anymore, Trent says, "Oh, she must have been written out." She doesn't exist in the story at all. This is this now. I know that we're we're already over time, but I have to bring this up because it's one of the main reasons I wanted to talk about the movie. I'll sure. try and be quick about it. I've mentioned his name many times already. Michael DeLuca was the writer of this film. Michael DeLuca is a long is a, is a long working producer. He's produced a ton of films very successfully. He's only written this movie and a couple of other 
incredibly crappy movies. Not just crappy, but like the crappiest of things. Did he also work on Fart the Movie along with the writers <laughs> of Cigarette Burns? <laughs> uh, he did not work on Fart the Movie. But he did work on Threshold, one of the worst uh, Star Trek episodes ever made. He okay. worked on the Sylvester Stallone Judge Dredd movie. And most specifically, he worked on the final canon Nightmare on Elm Street film, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, which is which is just superhumanly, weirdly, bizarrely bad. Like, bad enough to talk about on the show. It's so stupid. Apparently, the script for... And not only that, but Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare not only follows a similar arc for the characters as this film... But this scene with Charlton Heston telling him that the people who died in the town or that he lost in the town don't exist anymore, almost line for line happens in Freddy's Dead. Really? Almost line for line, except that instead of Charlton Heston, it's Yafet Kodo saying it to the main characters. Oh, which would I love Yafet Kodo. Yafet Kodo was great, and he's one of the only good parts of that piece of shit. But, uh, so what happened was, DeLuca wrote this script in the 80s, like I said, hoping Carpenter would direct it, but Carpenter was too busy working on his Chevy Chase Invisible Man movie, which I'm sure he thought would be a classic. Freddy's Dead was made in the interim between when this movie went into development hell with nobody working on it or touching it, and when Carpenter picked up the script again. So maybe when he was writing Freddy's Dead, he was just like, man, my dream script isn't getting made. I should just get some of my ideas out there. Possible. Which is entirely possible. The weirdest part of this for me, though, is not only that DeLuca never wrote anything good before, never wrote anything good after. I even looked up, he got his start writing episodes of the Freddy's Nightmares Anthology Horror Show. Okay. I watched one of his episodes. It was one of the worst hours of TV I've ever had. This is the only quality script he's ever written. But also, the one Freddy script he wrote, right after that, the franchise was rebooted with a film called Wes Craven's New Nightmare. came out the same year as this movie and was all about the idea of Freddy Krueger being a form worn by an ancient evil force beyond our world who forces the actors in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise to play out their roles from the movies so that he can enter our world, which is so close to the concept of this movie... And yet Michael DeLuca had nothing to do with that film. Really? Nothing to do with that at all. I None of this means anything, but it's so bizarre, I can't stop thinking about it. Uh, so Michael DeLuca, it, uh, I guess, is just one of those writers like George Lucas we were talking about earlier, who just has one good story in him, and he just he told it. And any other fame he's ever gone out of produ outside of producing has been telling the same story over again. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes it happens. Trent tells Heston, like we said, that he burned the last copy, but Heston tells him, you know, you delivered this months ago. You delivered it in the spring. We published it. It's been on shelves for there seven weeks. There was no styles. Get your hands off me, you damn dirty apes. <laughs> exactly. Where's your messiah now? I didn't say that line in the Ten Commandments. <laughs> this... This was a scene that this was the scene that sold Heston on the movie. By the way, he loved oh really? This, he loved this scene so much. He asked Carpenter for extra rehearsal time to make sure that he really got it right, and he does a fantastic job with it. To be to be fair, my favorite bit is when he says, "No, nah, I don't read any of Sutter Kane's books. I, I don't have the stomach, the stomach for, it. for it." Yeah, he says it in such a matter of fact way. Trent is left with no other recourse but to follow Kane's agent's example, take an axe and a dirty trench coat. And go out and start killing Kane fans. And kill some smooth young boy. Just some smooth young boy. He says, do you like the book? 
says, I love it. And he said, well, you won't be surprised by this then, and chops him into a million pieces. Here's another problem I had with this movie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we are now at least three months out from the release of In the Mouth of Madness, the Sutter Kane book. People yes. are still lining up to get it. If you had wanted well, no, this they, book... they say seven weeks. They say there's seven weeks uh, from... It's been on the shelves for seven weeks, and the movie comes out next month. Okay. Yeah. Two months and a week. <laughs> if that. Okay. Uh, and people are still lining up. They're still going fucking nuts for it. Yeah. It should have been over by now. I, I would agree with you. The only thing that they add to kind of justify it is that apparently word of Sutter Kane's death, I guess we can call it, has gotten out. And is, okay. this is considered to be a posthumous well, release of the okay. author still doesn't justify there being round the block, block lines, lines for the seven author. weeks afterwards seven weeks afterwards but uh it is something uh we are brought back to the present we see that david warner is visibly shaken by trent's story he's very upset by the story trent just told him which tells me that he's not a very good psychologist no <laughs> <laughs> but granted to be fair to my Close personal friend David Warner. <laughs> right, yeah. Davy, as I call him. Davy, as you call him. Um, yeah. He has seen shit outside the asylum mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that has brought him there where he is more inclined to believe Fair Sam Neill. Fair enough. He's he's talking about a, an epidemic and he's and what if if the story that Trent has told him is true, very unlikely, no. but if the story he's told him is true, the epidemic is only going to get worse. In fact, Trent says humanity has about another 10 years, maybe less, and then he, the human race will be nothing but a bedtime story. Oh. <laughs> I hope we're a cute one. I do too. David Warner leaves and John Glover asks him in his most flamboyant way, it's the only way John Glover knows how to be, do you read Sutter Kane? Do you read Sutter Kane? <laughs> that night, monsters storm the asylum, killing everyone and freeing Trent from his, his room. Uh, Trent leaves his cell to see that the halls are strewn with torn pages and covers of Sutter Kane's books. He leaves the asylum, heads into the city where he finds a movie theater, and sits down to watch In the Mouth of Madness. Because we are told previously yes. that Sutter Kane's plan is to unleash his vision through his book. Right. And but as, what as, about people who don't read? There's a movie. There's a movie. And in fact, it is indeed the movie that we have been watching right now. They don't do that trick that some... Uh, movies about movies do where they have other actors playing the same roles yeah. we're literally seeing shots from the film we just saw up on yes. the screen in front of him and you know what sam neil loves it sam neil thinks it's so loves funny it. it's fucking hilarious it's so funny it's he, like van wilder to <laughs> he starts laughing specifically he laughs as he sees his character insisting paradoxically that this is not reality or that this is reality in various scenes he laughs as his character falls over or violence is, is enacted upon him uh he laughs maniacally uh louder and louder and louder and then the drums kick in as the rock the rock theme of this movie Dwayne kicks johnson in. comes in he's like in the mouth of madness do you smell what i'm cooking <laughs> the rock music theme kicks in this is a prequel to the rundown the what? The Rundown. What's The Rundown? It's uh, The Rock and Sean William Scott and sort okay. of like a... 
Indiana Jones sort of homage a bit. All right, it's I've, I've generally considered this. one of the Rock's better movies. Okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> so he laughs maniacally. The Rock music starts playing, and as Gary Kibb uh, flatly says at the end of the commentary track, "It was a good time." <laughs> <laughs> So but that was in the mouth of madness. I love this ending. It's I love such it a good so ending. So goddamn much. It doesn't end on a bang. It really doesn't. It does. It ends with Sam Neill in this theater yeah. watching the movie we just saw. Yeah. And going insane. And it, it's and it almost and and to me this movie manages to achieve. This movie manages to achieve something that both. Cigarette Burns, to a certain extent, and the other one we talked about with a very similar idea, the Curse Antrim. movie, Antrim, to a much greater extent, in my opinion, failed to do, which is to show, by showing us the whole movie, and then showing us those clips of the movie back again to John Trent, I can see myself in his seat going insane watching that movie. Okay. Now, in Cigarette Burns, we talked about they the scene where they're watching the movie is effective mm-hmm. because the movie itself is not necessarily... Like, just the creepy bits of them the... ripping off their fingernails and shit. That's not supposed to be the part that makes you crazy. No, the... There's po- supposed to be something fundamentally wrong with the film, like on a mystical level. Uh, we'll spoil it. Torturing an angel. Torturing an angel that drives people It's just crazy. such a fucked up idea that's like, of course, watching this act would drive you insane right but like that's that's a sort of a a more alien concept where i can see it not working for some people i watched it with my wife as i mentioned that episode and she thought that them showing the film at all ruined the concept of the of the film Mm. uh she thought the rest of the movie was good just that part of it she wasn't as, as happy with but in this movie, having him see himself watching all of his struggles, all of the suffering he went through for nothing, it's a very relatable reaction to just burst into insane laughter. Yeah. Uh, at the well, end. What, what other option does he have? Exactly. At this point. Because, exactly. again... The only rational, the only sane response is insanity. There's so many layers of metafiction going on. Yes. The world throughout has, the entire film. The world has ended and mm-hmm. one of the few remaining people yeah. is cursed with the knowledge that he's not real. Yeah. Like he's literally just like that he was never real. He's going through actual pain and torment and yeah. uh existential crisis. Yeah. And he knows that, like, he doesn't even really need to feel this. Yes. It's fucking beautiful. It's fucking great. It is beautiful in how horrible it is. Yes. <laughs> Obviously. No, this is, this is to, to my mind, this movie is... Uh, it's the best Lovecraft movie that we have seen. Absolutely. This movie captures cosmic horror in a level that... Uh, honestly, even my even my favorite Lovecraft filmmaker Stuart Gordon has never managed to capture. Because well, one to be fair to Stuart Gordon, yes. he does not go after the cosmic horror. No, he doesn't. He goes he after the goes more after monster the, horror. He goes after the more gooey shit. The most cosmic horror he's ever done is From Beyond, and yes. even then, he went after the the more body horror elements of the story, saying it's since like, well, the story says it it stimulates this gland. What if the gland turned into a thing in your head? 
But what this movie does that's so brilliant Mm -hmm. is it is hard to convey this idea that you are an insignificant part of the universe. Yeah. Because by human nature, just the fact that we can only experience our own consciousness, Mm -hmm. we are our whole world. Yes. And everything outside of us, is why it's so easy for people to fall into ideas of thinking that maybe this is a simulation. Yes. How do we know that your thoughts are the same as another person's thoughts? The best way to convey that through a fictional means is Mm -hmm. to have a character realize that they are part of fiction. Yeah. Which is the, the best way to illustrate like, oh shit, I'm just this small thing that's being controlled by powers Mm -hmm. beyond my comprehension. Yeah, the old ones don't. The old ones in Lovecraft stories are not evil, which is where a lot of Lovecraftian stories written after his death and Lovecraftian adaptations fall apart. His stories are not about good versus evil. They're about humans realizing that there are bigger things in the world, which and, is what this fucking movie is. Yeah, it's it's a person realizing they're part of a story. They're that they are such a small, insignificant thing, and that with a. a a backspace key, yes. they can be gone. Is there anything else you would like to say about In the Mouth of Madness? Uh, it's a fantastic movie. I had a lot of fun. Even just watching it to take notes, Yeah, I had a lot of fun. I, even if you, uh, you listened to us at the beginning and you were like, fuck that, I don't need to watch this movie, I'm just going to listen to For the Yucks... Sure, you can. I hope you enjoyed the episode, but I really think you need to go and you need to watch this movie now because there's a whole bunch of stuff in this movie we couldn't even talk about. We went over time and we didn't even cover everything in this no. fucking movie. But uh, yeah, it's definitely worth checking out. It's mm-hmm. a fantastic film. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what I will bring to the podcast next time. Sure, but uh, anything else you would like to add? No, I think I think we have pretty much covered it. And uh, that has been, and and uh, we're two voices that you hear through the internet that may or may not be real, and you may not be real, and we are all watching this movie based on a book that was written by Sutter Kane, and perhaps we'll all go mad and turn into monsters tonight. We can only hope. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Bye.